This podcast was originally presented in June of 2019. It has been edited to make it current and bring it up to date. We hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. From Redfield Arts Audio, available now worldwide on Audible. Jeffrey Combs, Nevermore, An Evening with Edgar Allan Poe. Written by Dennis Paoli. Directed by Stuart Gordon. Recorded before a live audience. You are here this evening, no doubt, to hear yours truly recite the most popular poem ever written upon these shores. <laughs> for, for many years, my, uh, my, my stories, my tales, that more popular than my poetry, and magazines and readership just demanded, oh, new tale, every issue. Oh, God, do you hear it louder? Louder, 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 villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more, I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. In this program, illustrator and artist Mark Wheatley talks about his career as an artist and publisher in the comics industry and his recent book, Songs of Giants, The Poetry of Pulp. The illustrated anthology of poems written by H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and Robert E. Howard inspired a companion audio collection with readings by Mark Redfield and original music by Jennifer Rouse. I loved recording the poems. Um that you had assembled for Songs of Giants, the poetry of pulp. And um, I was surprised by things that I didn't know uh, that were written by these three authors. And uh, I thank you You're enormously <laughs> for asking me to the dance and saying, hey, would you, would you record these and do this? I think you did an amazing job. I feel blessed that you were a part of it, and I really do feel upstaged by both the work you and oh, Jennifer stop. did. I am absolutely <laughs> serious. It is a mind-blowing... I mean, you really brought those poems to life, and especially the, the ones that, uh, that uh, Howard, Robert E. Howard, wrote, yeah. uh, because he wrote, usually speaking his work out loud, both his poems and his prose. And so the idea that he would do that you can really envision it when you're speaking. It's like, and and <laughs> the best poems, I think, are like Shakespeare. They're meant to be heard. Mm -hmm. They're meant to be spoken out loud, and they're much more enjoyable. The the character stuff that, um, and the tricky thing about Howard for me is is was trying to break the rhythm so they're not all so heavy, so that the reading is not as heavy as a sword or a shield or something. And then by the time, you know, if anybody knows Edgar Rice Burroughs, mm. you know, they know that he also wrote westerns. Right. And they are a lot of fun. And uh, the story, the one about My Pal Bill is um, the ballad of My Pal Bill or whatever mm -hmm. it's called. It's, it's just 
it's maybe not a big knee slapper, but it's so charming getting to its punchline. And that's one of his Western poems. Yeah. So where did the idea, you know, you're, you, you've been doing so many different things in some of your work mm -hmm. in recent years. And when I first met you, um, I think it was Frankenstein Mobster was the hot thing that you had just come out of the yeah, oven. Yeah, so that would made. have been, when we went to the comic book, that would have been like early 2000s, 2004, 2005, something like that. Maybe, yeah. Something like that. And uh, Frankenstein Mobster originally started back in the 90s, and I was all set to start. We, our website, InsightStudiosGroup.com, at that time was extremely popular online, and I think it was largely due to the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of other visual material online. Every year we were winning design awards for our website, which was, you know, a picture and some type. <laughs> I right. mean, it, there was no option to, to do much design back then because the code wouldn't support it. So we had comics up every week, uh, and people would come. We had millions of people hitting our site, and so I started developing the Frankenstein Mobster as a daily strip that would appear on our site. And then we got really busy with the publishing because the books took off, and so I had to put it aside. Yeah, who was Insight Studios at the in at the that time? Uh, it was a lot of guys. There were about nineteen guys who were wow. in there. Um, but the primary ones that folks were familiar with would be uh, myself, Mark Hempel. Uh, Frank Cho, um, Alan Gross, uh, Neil Vokes, uh, Gray Morrow, um, Mike Oming, mm -hmm. uh, Robert Tunnell, mm -hmm. uh, Alex Sevick. Um, and I know, and I know uh, Tunnell, Bob Tunnell fairly well, and Neil Vokes, uh, uh, we're, we're friendly. And I've only gotten to know Mark Hempel in the mm -hmm. last couple of years doing some mm -hmm. events with him and uh, the Baltimore Comic Con and being able to chat with him and, and, and see his work and mm -hmm. talk about stuff. Really talented guy. I, I'd, I'd love to see, before we talk about uh, what's happening uh, now in new work, it would be nice if Frankenstein Mobster, if some other things could, could come about with that. And it only pops into my head as we're talking right this moment that depending on what's tied up, it might be kind of fun to do some kind of audio uh, drama thing with him. Yeah, certainly could. Stop right there, guys. Hi, this is Jennifer Rouse, and I'm composing the music score for Frankenstein Mobster from a script by Mark Redfield. It'll be available on Audible in late 2021. In May of 2021, Comic Mix launched a Kickstarter campaign to go beyond the Audible digital download to create a collector's three-disc CD set and a two-album LP set of the Redfield Arts audio production. I'm very excited to make the music and sound design bringing Mark Wheatley's Frankenstein mobster to life. Prepare yourself for a sensational experience with the Frankenstein mobster. Ripped from the headlines, the most amazing story of crime ever told. In a city where monsters live and mobsters rule. A mad scientist builds a better mobster. The Frankenstein Mobster. Hi, I'm Mark Wheatley, and I'm the creator of the Frankenstein Mobster. I'm very excited to announce a new full cast audio drama monsterama being produced by Mark Redfield and Jennifer Rouse. Hi, this is Mark Redfield speaking to you from the home office, uh, and I cannot wait 
to continue my contribution and collaboration on Frankenstein Mobster. I'm going to get back to my contribution. One of them is adapting it to an audio drama in a script and then directing and doing some voices. So I hope that you join us and you collaborate with your contribution. Hi, I'm Jennifer Rouse, and I'm going to be the composer and sound designer on Frankenstein Mobster. I'm looking forward to working with Mark Wheatley and Mark Redfield on this project. We're doing a Kickstarter campaign, and we would love for you to contribute. Thank you so much. Come with us to Monstro City. You will walk the streets with ghouls and zombies. With an amazing cast of actors, we will bring this story to life as we have done again and again. And now, Redfield Arts Audio, working with Mark Wheatley, brings the Frankenstein mobster to spectacular life with a full cast Monsterama audio drama. Never before has there been such an epic experience of monsters, mobsters, and things that go bump in the night. Join us for a journey into thrills, adventure, and justice. But the Frankenstein mobster will not be able to prevail alone. Your support will make all the difference. Your rewards will be rich. And we will all have a lot of fun. Um, at the, I own all of my titles, and I've maintained okay. control of them. Uh, I have one title optioned at the moment for movies, which is Blood of the Innocent. Yeah. Um, but we actually not only... Is there have, any more you can talk about that right it's, now? Or you know, it, it's Hollywood. So you and if you've ever seen the chart of the uh, 87 steps to getting something <laughs> into, you know, into a theater, uh, we're, 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 we're stuck in that loop around step 36. <laughs> it's yeah. just been going on and on and on and on. And on. New director, new script, new director. Well, I don't want to pitch. New director, yeah. new script. <laughs> I don't want to pitch you, but literally, just sitting here talking about it and remembering, you know, what I know about it, and uh, it's a title that always Frankenstein mobster, a play, obviously. The if script exists. Uh, it would be something we could do. I I, th I think that, that I wrote people it. People love that title. They're I like, wrote it as a film. I wrote it as a film first, first, uh -huh. and then did the comic. Um, and I'm curious always about that kind of process because, you know, I've made some films and I'm reverse engineering some of my things. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a, a sometime writing partner named Stuart Voitillo. We wrote a pirate script, Mistress of the Seas, about the true life Anne Bonny and Mary mm -hmm. Reed. Right. We're talking about reverse engineering that into an audio drama because it's, yeah. a, it's a fun script we yeah. wrote. But it was written with a lot of swash and buckle visual. Well, tell me about that process. Uh, about about. Well, that. I had written for television in the mid '90s uh, for HBO, um, and uh, put together a writing team. But the moment I got into writing for television, I realized how little I knew about writing. Mm -hmm. Editors, I'd had some good editors in comics, but the best editors I'd had in comics largely were cheerleaders and traffic cops. You know, they made everything run on time. They would make sure you were happy and supported, but they let you pretty much do what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, and I, I took writing courses in college, but 
they didn't really teach us much. They had us read a lot, and then they had to just write some stuff, and then it got a grade. Right. So I started working with, uh, and I'm, I can't remember her name now, but the uh, the story editor for the series we were doing, which was Troll Tales, um, uh, was, uh, she, we could probably figure this out, because she played um, Grandma, Grandmama, Oh, on uh, the the on the syndicated Adams family. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's way out there in the boondocks. Vancouver. She was up yeah, in Vancouver. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, um, so we'd get into these long conversations about what I was doing with my scripts and stuff, and and she was just brilliant. I mean, she really understood, you know, like three or four different schools of thought about structure on story and stuff. And, yeah. and, and how, and, and I was learning so much. I actually, uh, the final script I ended up doing with her, I rewrote it three times on my own mm-hmm. from scratch, just because I thought I could get some more out of it. Yeah. And she, she was cheerleading me after that. And, but by the way, this also says how much I love comics too, because after working like two or three years, two seasons of this show, um, uh, with with the television stuff and and making better money and being treated better generally than I yeah. was in comics, um, uh, when the series wrapped, she came back to me and she said, "I'm starting a new series in the fall, uh, and I'd love to have you be a part of my writing team. Give me a call mm. in September." Well, by the time September came, I was back doing comics, and it was like a year later. I woke up at like three in the morning. I went. Damn, I was supposed to call her. <laughs> so, in a lot of ways, this uh, two year on on that piece in on that right in that writer's room and that writing team was kind of a side step of forward momentum. Yeah, you were coming out of comics and then back in. Yeah, but it also gave me a taste of what it was like to write a script for, you know, film production type yeah. thing. And so I decided I wanted to try to. Um, <laughs> well, we had had. Uh, 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 our Hammer of the Gods, Mike, Mike Omi and I did Hammer of the Gods together, and we're getting ready to do it again. Um, and uh, it had been optioned for a motion picture from New Line Cinema. And uh, they came up with a script <laughs> that was laughable in its infidelity to the original material. <laughs> it was, uh, I mean... I, I won't even get into it, but it was just so far away from what we were doing. And in uh, the scripts kept going back and forth and back and forth. And finally, the uh, the producers came to us and said, we're not sure that this is a filmable book. And I said, how do you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, I, I kept telling them, look, I'd be happy to take a crack at writing a bad script for $150,000. Sure. Yeah, give me a crack at it. <laughs> and so I decided I was going to try to really master this film writing mm-hmm. thing. And I set out to write a new thing. And I wrote Frankenstein Mobster as a film script. And, you know, I put a lot more time into it than I probably should have. And it took about nine months carefully going through it each time. Sure. And, and honing it and pulling it apart and putting it back together and analyzing it. And finally got it to the point where I liked it a lot. And I gave it to... Um, my my Hollywood guy and he uh, took it around and we got the first guy in line who wanted it was Jerry Bruckheimer. Wow, yeah. And at that time, I I when he came to me, I hadn't finished the script, and I said I want to know what it is before I'd offer selling it to you. And he goes, all right, well call me. You know? So th- we had like thirty three directors and film producers come at us about this thing, and then um, uh, Helsing came out. 
Interesting. Van Helsing. The Van Helsing. Yeah, Van Helsing. Yeah. Hugh With Jackman. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, instantly, everybody's like, nobody wants classic monsters. <laughs> I, I need to wedge in here for a minute because, and what year is the brush with New Line cinema? Oh, God. I, I Ballpark it. I lose track. See, the thing is. Late is 90s, that, I guess. The, the, see, the interesting mm. thing is, is that I have stories that parallel. Mm. Um, By the way, I love the team that was working on it. Some of the most brilliant people I've ever sure. worked with. And when I finally asked them, why do you keep making such bad scripts? They said, because that's what they pay us to do. Uh, the, the gatekeepers, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, it's always the gatekeepers. But it's f- f- bizarrely enough, we kind of parallel, although I think my brush with the new line was a few years earlier. We, My sometime writing partner, uh, Stuart Voitillo, who I've created the Vampire Hunters Incorporated thing with, mm-hmm. um, when that was a screenplay, we started it as an independent, raised money, and it didn't really work, and we wrote a novel, and then we started sending it around, and New Line uh, passed on it as a film. And a couple of years later, they got back into touch and said, remember that thing about Vampire Hunters? We're doing, going to do some television. We'd like to think of it. And I thought, okay, now our ticket's written. Mm-hmm. And they passed on it. Yeah. And then oddly enough, I think before we started recording, I was talking about reverse engineering a screenplay that Stuart and I wrote, which was a story that, that Stuart wanted to do. Uh, based on the pirates and Bonnie and and Mary Reed, and we wrote a script called Mistress of the Sea, which now we're kind of re- reverse engineering into a drama. That was sent to Michelle Pfeiffer's company. Mm. And parallel to your story, Cutthroat Island had come out, right. and nobody wanted to look at pirate pictures again right. until right. Bruckheimer does the deal with Disney and does right. with Johnny Depp, Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. So it's always those... It's always very exciting, you know, but I think this is a universal story that mm-hmm. a lot of people Oh, sure, have. yeah, because there are never bad movies. Yeah. There are only bad genres, mm. you know. I mean, it, it, the, the public doesn't want a genre. It, it, it couldn't possibly, they don't want a bad movie. Right. <laughs> I, yeah. So. But, the, so, this is the first incarnation of Frankenstein Mobster, and then right. How, when, did, when did you decide and what was the reasoning well, into, well, let's make it into a book? Yeah, I had become too successful as a publisher. And, um, Inside Studios. Yeah, was, and I was spending my entire time, you know, being Mr. Businessman on the phone all day long with distributors and bookstores and setting up signings. And, and that was when this was a good business to be in. Well, for a brief period there, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> it comes and goes. Right, right. <laughs> it has its moments. Um, and... Uh, I, I stepped back and I told my guys at the studio, look, I need some help. We were a partnership. Everybody was supposed to be kicking in, but I was the one doing all the business and they were having all the fun. So I said, I'm going to do this work here. This is what I'm good at. And I will make sure I keep all my contacts and distribution going. But you guys need to step up and do this, this and this. And they all said, no, we don't want to do that. So it was the structure, <laughs> and this is curious to me, it was the structure of the company very much a dare I use the word, was it a collective and the hierarchy and the job descriptions weren't clearly defined? No, everybody until, would pitch in the, wherever, yeah. Right. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, and, and you United, know what? United Artists, let's make our art and Mark is going to sell it. Yeah. Because you, you elected right. yourself. And I, would, and I would take a cut from right. what I, what, whatever was passing through my hands. And right. I was offering that back for them to kick in and start, you know. But, right. And, you know, I was, I don't know, I was a sugar daddy in a way because... Mm-hmm. 
you know, I gave people office space for free and they got to use equipment for free and they, you know, right, and right. I didn't charge them for that stuff. So, yeah. so now, now it becomes, now Frankenstein Monster becomes a book, which uh, I don't want to spend all of our chat and we'll have lots of chats in the future, but. Um, well, the major difference between what I did for the film. And then on a, on a, just purely on a writer technical thing, because you're, and I've spent a, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to write screenplays, how to make screenplays visual even though Orson Welles says it's okay to have a narrator, and mm-hmm. I agree with that. But there's a certain amount of your condensing and your tightening to come into a story late and tell a story, you know, and keep it moving. Mm-hmm. And with a comic book, graphic novel, what have you, it's you're condensing on top of condensing in a lot of ways. So, or am I wrong about that? Um, I actually expanded ah. for the comic book. Yeah. Yeah, um, because, you know, there were multiple issues. We did seven issues. And the major difference between what I did for the film and uh, what I did in the comic is that I added an opening chapter, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, which introduced the characters in a much more leisurely way. Um, And in movies, it's all about the action and keeping things moving and moving and moving. Here I was able to really set back and let the character tensions Hold your interest. Become rather. a little more novelistic. A yes. More, right. Yeah, right. Literary. So it has a new beginning, you yeah. know, but it leads right into the beginning of the movie. So take a hard right turn onto another thing because we, you, you have a fascinating, enormous collection of old magazines, of pulp <laughs> magazines. I love the pulps. Uh, I my love of it is not as broad or as deep as yours. Your reading. Um, I come at it like many do. Uh, you know, as a teenager, I'm a Tarzan fan. My exposure to the, the shadow was on the radio, but that led to Gibson's novels, collecting some of the magazines, not as hardcore as I've seen your collection is mm. spectacular. And that then led to other pulp, pulp titles, pulp characters. And I love the, the subgenre. I love these action heroes and these heroes of mystery and, very few of them are superheroes other than maybe somebody like a Doc Savage, which a, a lay audience may have heard of. Um, maybe the original superhero. The original superhero, the, sure. I think John Carter probably is the original superhero, but, but Doc Savage really conceptualized it as an ongoing sort of comic booky sort of formula. And then somehow, and I'm trying to drive way around the block to come back to Songs of Giants, the poetry of pulps, what little did I know from my exposure at the age of 14 throughout all of my life of just being a fan and, and loving the adventure stories was that, and then it's funny because in hindsight, well, they are writers, and there isn't a writer that I don't know that hasn't dabbled in poetry. At what point did you realize that they, uh, and some may be more obvious than others, uh, Lovecraft, for instance, but... I think when, it's a mark of a certain kind of author that they're willing to admit it. And and so <laughs> and the or yeah, yeah. I mean, when you go back to and you know that I'm working on a lot of Edgar Allan Poe stuff and he mm-hmm. thought of himself as a poet. Uh, that's that's what he woke up in the morning. I'm I'm not an editor, I'm not a newspaper editor, I'm not a prose writer, I'm a poet. That's what he mm-hmm. But at what point did you find out that these heroes who wrote these great books like Burroughs, Robert E. Howard who everybody listening yeah. will know. Howard introduced book. me to it. Really? Yeah, because I really enjoyed reading Howard when I was a kid. You know, his stuff is just so visceral and so 
honest and just laid out. And um, but I lost enthusiasm reading the collections that were coming out in the '60s and '70s because it it just seemed to eventually get weak. Mm-hmm. And I, I moved away from it. And then as I got older and I realized that there were, you know, clean manuscripts and things that, you know, Elsprague de Camp and Lynn Carter had, like, bastardized everything and, yeah. you know, and 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 pastiched it together wow, and that's stretched whole, it out. And, yeah, that's a whole yeah, that's what was of itself. That's what was causing me to lose enthusiasm because I was mentally confusing the pastiches with the original material and I... And and it was so obvious, and now you look at it, how poor the pastiches yeah. are compared to the original material. So I got started a quest to find the pure material, and and that has never let me down. The really mm-hmm. good stuff and tons of poetry. I mean, all sorts of poetry because I'm getting the journals now, that Robert E. Howard journals and things, the right. stuff that the fans right. are putting together, and they're just lots and lots of poetry. And so one of my friends, Tim Truman. Uh, who did Scout and Grimjack and and you know just an excellent artist and creator? Mm-hmm. He and I uh, got started together at uh, First Comics, and that's when we became friends, and found out that we were both into music, and that he is he is like one of the world's great guitar players. He's played with the Grateful Dead. He's played with Santana. Wow. You know, and <laughs> you know just just to hang out. You know, not yeah. like not like touring with him or anything, right? right. You know? And he and so. Uh, I used to get him down because he lives up in Pennsylvania. I used to get him down for a pizza and we would lay down some tracks together and he just did some beautiful stuff. We did a record that was in the Dracula comic that I did ages ago, a little Mm. flexi disc. And I just loved working with him. And I, he would just started writing the, the, uh, the Conan material for dark horse. And I, and I got in touch with him. I said, man, I'm, I'm thinking that these poems that, that Robert E. Howard did would make fantastic lyrics for rock songs. Yeah. What if we put together an album, man? And, and he was like, oh, that's really cool. I don't know when I'd have time to do it, though. And and you know, we're both really in that boat, right? Yeah. But it's one of those dream projects. So I took a couple of the lyrics that I thought were really appropriate, and I did one called Surrender, and I laid down the basic tracks and stuff, and I sent it to Tim, and I said, so I envisioned this with this lead guitar part, you know, and uh, if you just want to lay them down, and he says, well, I can come down and do it with the onside. So it just kept getting delayed. Never happened, never happened, yeah. never happened, never happened, never happened. And finally, one day, I got to the point with my setup where I could, I, I got a guitar controller, and I was able to fake lead guitar now pretty well. <laughs> So I laid down a fake lead a, guitar a track. Technology and it's incredible time. But anyway, I know, I know. And uh, I was able to lay down at least a passable lead guitar track, and then I sent that to him. He says, "What do you need me for?"
time that it was really getting there where we were realizing we could do this mm-hmm. that i thought in terms less in terms of just the creative enthusiasm but more in the marketing it's like you know it's hard to sell a comic book these days through the comic book market we want to sell a little cd of music that nobody can hear mm-hmm. to the comic book market and we certainly can't sell it to the real music market so mm-hmm. what are we doing <laughs> so i backed away from it and i i have a uh, the King and the Oak, which is the King Call poem, you know, like half done, mm-hmm. and never finished it, which is just as well because it's not in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, at the time, people yeah. were claiming yeah. it was, but we did research, it's not. So um, that's where it sat for a long time, but it, it kept sticking in my mind, you know, that, and one of the things I wanted to do is if we had done this as a CD, Tim and I were going to illustrate the book of lyrics yeah. to go yeah. with it, right? And the frustration there was that it'd be the size of a CD because you want pictures to be big. And that was before the vinyl, you know, enthusiasms. Yeah. So, you know, there, it, it, yeah. So time went on. And one day I, it just, I, we, yes, I did uh, Dr. Cthulhu, which was successful uh, and made a lot of people happy. It was very popular. 
And and it, it took six years to get off the ground because I, I created it based on a very slight knowledge of H.P. Lovecraft. I'd read some of his works. Didn't know much about him. Um, and realized after pussing around with it for about four years that I wasn't the right person to write Dr. Cthulhu because I wasn't immersed in Lovecraft. Right. And so I brought in uh, G.D. Foxen to, to write it, who really is immersed in that material, and he did a beautiful job with it. But in the process, I realized Lovecraft wrote all this poetry. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I thought, wow, you know, there are huge fandoms for Lovecraft and Howard. The only guy who isn't in here is Burroughs. I wonder if he wrote poetry. And so I went out and I looked, and there you go. He wrote poetry. <laughs> and for those who don't know who are listening, of course, Mark Wheatley is an enormous uh, Burroughs fan, Edgar Rice Burroughs fan, and has uh, produced an enormous amount of work with various Yeah, I started Burroughs out characters. packaging the comic books for Tarzan back in the 90s, the early yeah. 90s, and I've had an association with the Burroughs company ever since. Yeah. so Which helped. For, for Songs of Giants, because I literally only had to call one phone number yeah, <laughs> to get permission to use the material. My Mother Was a Wild Cat by Edgar Rice Burroughs. My mother was a wild cat. My father was a bear. I picks my teeth with barbed wire. With cactus combs my hair. And like I said earlier, I love the Burroughs Western stuff that's in it. It just really breaks all of the sword and sorcery and not everything. And this was the other surprise about the the poems that you picked for the book and for this album, that they're not all dark and terrible. And we have these conceptions of some of our literary heroes like Lovecraft. And suddenly we realize he's writing about the 4th of July. And he's... And Santa Claus. And he's writing about <laughs> Santa Claus. And it's... There's a little Hallmark card, a little Lovecraft Christmas card ditty uh-huh. that he sent to friends. Apparently, yeah. I don't know. Sat, sat on the you know sure. Providence and sang with a bell. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But uh, the, the diversity of little little touches and stories and verses is just very refreshing about the whole thing. And that is what really excited me as an illustrator. Yeah, because every essentially almost every two pages in the book, it's an entirely new genre and take and an atmosphere and mood. And it, it, it was an incredible range of illustrations I was able to play with. And uh, for those who haven't seen it, obviously we'll have um, uh, in the links and, and uh, everything else uh, where you can go to, to look at this and order it but uh, and look at the samples of the work because it really is eclectic and and I love the dynamic quality that you gave to these because you're you're capturing you know in an in an illustration you're capturing sometimes a mood sometimes an exact moment that captures that mood in that poem and and I think you're doing that really really well in those things well sometimes you want to hit it on the nose and sometimes you want to come on sideways to it a little, yeah absolutely <laughs> but um, the poems are like that right sometimes they they're impressionistic sometimes they're specific yeah, yeah. Um, um, and not any one writer is predictable no They'll do the same writers will do different different things, mm-hmm. um, and it's like Burroughs, like the poems you're talking about. Those are essentially stories, told ballads, as stories. Yeah, ballads. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, the cover, um, the the choices of the imagery on the cover. What is that referring to? What who is that? That was me trying to evoke the feeling of everything at one time. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. It's not specific to any author or any poem, yeah. but it it you know it has the you know the jungle cat, which appears several times in motifs in this yeah. poems. It has the ancient civilization of Babylon, which is mentioned specifically and generally throughout the various different poems. And it's got right. a sexy girl in the cover. I'm not quite sure how I came to that. Uh, um, there is the the one about the the, the, the lady. Um, it's kind of a sad poem. Yeah, you know, the one from Nantucket. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but again, I am just so grateful that you asked me to do this. Um, at what point did well, you realize? I mean, because you, you started, <laughs> you started with a song, and then oh, this wonderful book came out of your selections. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to assume this isn't even a question. Uh, we've never talked about it, but I'm just assuming that the poems you collected are the poems you liked. Yeah, you know, there was no other no well, there, other criteria. There the, or it's an intersection of the ones I really liked. Yeah, the ones that would Find fit together maybe. and make an interesting book, and the ones that were in the public domain, or I could get the rights to. Right, and then mm. and then even handed, every author had. A, right, you're not light on any one particular author, which is, right. pardon me, always good in a collection like mm-hmm. this. Um, so, uh, how did I was you, really hoping that it would give people a new way to look at these authors in you know specifically yeah but also in general to let people know there's a lot going on in pulp magazines they people look down at them but there was a lot of good material that came out of that and and somehow when when the wonderful books that came out of the pulps went on to become huge literary favorites they they somehow lose their connection to the pulps whereas (laughs) you know it doesn't it it's not like a two-way street it really should be so they they deserve some respect. <laughs> who's publishing? Um, who's publishing mainstream anymore? These authors, um, uh, you, you know. Well, Titan when, publishes a lot Titan of material. Because when I was coming up, no. you could walk into any. Do these names ring a bell? Uh, Walden Books, Cole's Bookstore, mm-hmm. all of these little outlets that had little outposts in emerging malls across America, mm-hmm. and at any given time. Oh, 75 to 82, 83, you could, you could pick down off the shelf a paperback, a Burroughs Tarzan, mm-hmm. a Lovecraft collection. You can probably uh, walk into a Barnes & Noble today and find a Burroughs book on the shelf. Yeah, or yeah. they do those collections now. That's what they you do, know, yeah. $20, big fat, here's everything. Yeah, so you, you get wrote. the first three Mars books, you get the first three uh, that's Tarzan right. books. Yeah. You know, I yeah. noticed they yeah. did that with yeah. Baum's uh, Wizard of Oz books and mm-hmm. some others, but uh, yeah, they were, it's always being repackaged. And for that matter, I I think there's probably like three or four editions of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft available right now that are collecting his stories. And not the same old, same old. Who's uh, uh, what's the uh, are the are, is is readership opening up? Are younger people grabbing onto the stuff? Mm. Uh, I mean, I loved. You I know, mean, poetry is really hot right now. And, and oddly, and that's because, and I love reading poetry, but mm-hmm. that's good news. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we'll get some interest from that. I mean, we do have a lot of folks who were signed onto the Kickstarter who were saying, "I never heard of these guys before. This looks cool." <laughs> and that's encouraging. That's yeah. good. Yeah. You know, and so, they're getting the word of this for the first time through the internet, through either Facebook. So, or so you Twitter bring people in from comics because I've got a comics background. You bring yeah. people in from science fiction because Jack McDivitt, who wrote the introduction, is this huge science fiction author. Right. You know. Robert Heinlein Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, the Nebula Award. I mean, he's, yeah. he's you know he's 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 done a little something. <laughs> so what's and what's so, coming up next that uh, uh, 
I can work with you. No, what's what's coming next? <laughs> always, always. Oh, we won't mention that one. <laughs> no, it's a little too early for that one, but I am going to be very much looking forward to working with you again. If you'd like to find out more or order Mark Wheatley's book, Songs of Giants, please visit www.insightstudiosgroup.com. Songs of Giants, the Poetry of Pulp. Poetry by H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and Robert E. Howard. Music by Jennifer Rouse. Readings by Mark Redfield. The steeples are white in the wild moonlight, and the trees have a silver glare. Past the chimneys high, see the vampires fly, and the harpies of upper air that flutter and laugh and stare. I carved a woman out of marble when the walls of Athens echoed to my fame and in the myrtle crown were shrined mine. I stood at the bar, at the Spread Eagle Bar, a drink in a drink whilst I smoked a cigar. When in walks a gent that I ain't never see and he lets out a belt the dawns at bay. The dead lay littered on our decks. Our masts were shot away. We beat them back with broken blades till crimson ran the tide. Death thundered in the cannon smoke when Richard Grenville died. We should have blown her hull apart and sunk beneath the main. The people saw upon his wrist the scars he had instead of toes, and a beard adorned its throat. On a set of rustic reeds, sweetly played this hybrid man. Not cared I for earthly needs, for I knew this was Pan. For more great audio, visit redfieldartsaudio.com.